Have you seen the violent film series, The Purge? If, if you did, you're probably not admitting it maybe in this context. Or the, uh, the Australian indie horror film, The Babadook. Neither of these films or the former film series is boring at all. But they might, at least for some of us sometimes, be kind of good for you. You know, many people don't always put this together, at least when they see a trailer. But many contemporary horror films today actually have a pretty moral theme underneath them. There's the spectacle, the violence, the fear, the blood, the guts. But the subtext is normally something about all of our lives, all of our everyday lives, and normally something ethical or moral or even good for us to think about. For example, The Purge. On the face of it, it's a near-future America that has record low crime. Wonderful. And they figured out how to do it. For one day a year, for 12 hours, everything is legal. Nothing is illegal, including murder. It's like if we give people a half a day, 12 hours, they'll get this all out of their system. So on the face of it, it's kind of a social murder film. But underneath the subtext is quite moral. It's encouraging us in America to think, how many of us live everyday, relatively comfortable lives, and we do that because a few people are suffering? There's kind of a, a moral underpinning. Or the Babadook. On the face of it, it's a, a widow and her six-year-old son. And suddenly at night, a shape-shifting monster starts to show up every evening in the boy's bedroom. On the face of it, it's a boogeyman story. But it's really a metaphor about grief. And in the film, you, you learn that you need to face, name, maybe even befriend or soothe your own grief. Underneath, there's something there for all of us. The films appear grotesque, and they are, but there's more going on. I think we find something similar in a number of biblical stories, particularly in the more ancient ones in what we call the Old Testament. So Ryan mentioned we're starting a new series this morning called Hard Truth, Finding God in Malachi, or Meeting God in Malachi. And admittedly, I don't know if this will be a comfortable series. So if you've had a rough week and you're like, man, I just want to go to Midtown today and, and get kind of a collective spiritual hug, um, you, you came the wrong month. So I, I apologize for that. But people have explored books like the one of this ancient Jewish prophet for thousands of years because they feel like it benefits them. Again, kind of like a horror flick, there's the surface, but then there's what's underneath that is about your life. 
And I want to mention now, as is typical when I teach here, um, after I'm done talking this morning, we're going to have some time to interact together. So if you have a question, a comment, uh, if you're sure I got everything all wrong and you want to let everyone know publicly, there will be a mic later and we can interact. Uh, I also want to personally thank Pastor Ryan for assigning me Chapter 1 of Malachi. Um, I was a pastor in the past. So I know how this goes. You're like, what, what do I not want to talk about? Let's give that to the guest. So thank you. I know, I know how it works. Okay, Malachi Chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Verse 6. Speaking for God here, Malachi says, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations." says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it. And you say, what a burden. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Obviously, this is kind of a strange story for contemporary modern people. Apparently, God, the Creator, is angry. Because people are not making the right animal sacrifices the right way. And again, uh, I, there is a bit of a horror to this. I think if most of us saw what was going on back then, we would find it rather disturbing. We'd probably make a phone call to someone to stop it. Here you have religious people praying prayers, bringing out large animals, holding them down as they're moaning, slitting their throats, draining the blood, sprinkling it everywhere, and then lighting them on fire as an act of worship to God. 
It is a bit of a horror. So what's going on here? Well, as far as we know, pretty much all ancient people all around the globe um, experienced or practiced animal sacrifice. Why? Well, again, let's try to get in the mindset of kind of deep history. For most people at this time, starvation was always a live option. There was never enough food to eat. And so if you managed to kill an animal, you felt like some kind of divine being or beings had blessed you and cared for you. It was a spiritual moment. When your tribe, a few group of people are wandering around and you kill an animal, there is a sense of the gods are showing favor on us. We should be thankful. This is amazing. We can go on together as a people. And then later on, when civilizations began to stay place in, or stay in one place, and you develop agriculture, and you domesticate animals, this practice was now ritualized. There had been a long sense of having food to eat as a spiritual moment. You should thank someone. And now it is formalized locally in a temple. You're thanking God for food. It's kind of like saying a prayer before a meal. Before everyone shares in the barbecue together. Because that's literally what happened. You would sacrifice an animal before heaven, and then everyone together would eat it. So Israel, like other ancient people, also practiced animal sacrifice, but they were a little different. They did not think, hey, let's sacrifice an animal to the local deity of this mountain or this river or this valley because then maybe that deity will think we're nice and the next, um, the, the next generation of the herd will be even more hardy. No, that's not how they thought. They viewed their God not as the local God, but as the universal creator of all people everywhere and all things. And this was not a God where if we do something nice for him, he will do something nice for us. But no, this God was considered pure goodness and beauty. It's the God of all people everywhere who made all things, and this God is good and beautiful. And so sacrificing a healthy male animal to this God is saying we trust in a creator who is good and beautiful and right to such a degree that we can eat together and offer our best animal and we trust that giving our best up to what is good, we will still be taken care of. We will be okay. But at this moment, when we come to Malachi and Israel's history, Israel was moving away from that. Kind of a thought of like, the best male? I mean, does this make sense? I mean, we should be studying that thing out. We can keep breeding. We'll never have to worry about food again. Look how healthy it is. Why are we going to sacrifice that one? 
Where's the one that like can't see, can't walk, it probably can't even breed? Let's give that one to God. This makes a lot more sense. I mean, he's supposed to be good, but we got to look out for ourselves. Let's be strategic. Let's be practical. Let's live in the real world. Let's put a plan together that will work for us. And God doesn't like it. Again, verse 13. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. So that's the surface level. That's like the plot of the horror film. But here's my attempt at naming what's really going on. A hard truth. If we are going to be good and decent people, our first priority will be to give ourselves over to what is good no matter what. To prioritize what seems careful and practical is to choose against what is good and right, which is God himself. This is the hard truth of this story. When you have decisions to make, when you have things to do, are you saying, this is the good and right thing to do, and I'm going to do it no matter what happens? Or are you moving away from that, which is moving away from God, by just doing what seems to work or be practical? The uh, cultural commentator Seth Godin kind of gives us a bit of an evocative metaphor. He says in our careers or our businesses or in our workplaces, if all we do is make our decisions on what seems to work, eventually every business will turn into a pornography website. That if you, all you do is say, let's just follow what seems to work well for us, you will end up in a place that's not helpful. Several years ago, I was at a um, conference in Nashville, and our facilitator was up talking and mentioned kind of offhandedly having four children. And that surprised some in the room, because everyone was quite convinced that he had two. And so someone said, I thought you had two kids, you have four kids? And he just had this offhanded comment. He said, there were two boys in our neighborhood who needed a place to stay. There was not a decision to be made for us, simply an adjustment to be made. And I think that kind of mindset is getting closer to what the Creator is saying to us through Malachi. The decision is what is good and right and do that no matter what. And then you can kind of figure out how to make it work. So I think there are some questions for you and I to consider this morning. When we have decisions to make, when we have to choose, do we choose what seems good and right no matter what, or what feels like it'll work well for us?
Do we do what is right? Or do we do what seems safe? When we are making decisions, what's the determining factors? What will make us more money? What will make us look good in our larger friend or social group? What's the easiest thing for us to do? Or what is good and what is right? When you've had a particularly bad day, how do you tend to deal with that afterwards? Do you double down on what you know is good for you or what just feels good in the moment? When you have some free time, do you spend any time considering what are the things I could do that will bring out good from within me? Or do you only think about what would be a good time? Now, I'm biased. Uh, Ryan's a friend. Ryan's a former student. Uh, he pulled me into this way before Midtown opened. Um, but having worshipped in dozens and dozens and dozens of different churches, this is a unique community. There are not a lot of churches like Midtown, which I think is wonderful. Part of the goal of Pastor Ryan, Pastor Andy, and other leaders is to try to create a context where hopefully all of us will have a personal experience with the Spirit. Less about information, less about a show, but how can we facilitate an experience where hopefully people personally connect with God, which I think is great. But even so, this only works if you and I are open. This only works if we come with a posture of, I want to become a different, more beautiful, more virtuous person. I hope to have an encounter with God that will bring out better things from within me. See, the goal is not to have a spiritual experience or even to be Christian necessarily. The goal is to give your life over to what is good, which is God. You can be spiritual and, yes, even officially Christian and miss it. Back to Malachi, verse 6. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? Where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? Verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. So the Creator is saying there are people that do spiritual experiences. There are people that do the worship thing. There are people that pray prayers. And yet they miss the entire point. You know, I've been doing this long enough that I've talked to numerous dear people who would say to me, this isn't working for me. And I would say, well, what's this? Well... God, church, worship, 
prayer, Jesus, I'm doing it and it's not working. I show up on Sundays, I've tried saying prayers, I, I read the Bible some, I try to, the best that I can understand it, I give money, I help with the kids, but it's not working. I do all of this, but my husband is still an addict, and God has not straightened him out. I do all this, but I still have not found a doctor that can help my daughter. She's not healed. I do all of this, but I'm still in debt, and God is not helping me out. I've done it, and my sister is still a mess. She's not changing her mind. She still buys into toxic political views. If that is you, I'm sorry. Some of us deal with very heavy matters in life, and it is not easy for any of us. But I think the scriptures are pretty clear that what this offers is if we are open, the means to become a more beautiful soul, to develop more inner goodness. This is what this offers. It doesn't offer a better life. It doesn't offer power to change other people's minds or to straighten them out. It doesn't offer a power to fix the world, even. It certainly doesn't offer you the insight to what are the exact right views for all the difficult and controversial things going on in our culture. It offers, if we are open, a path to growing in inner beauty and goodness. If this is what we are seeking. But if that's not what we come here for, this doesn't offer us anything. Not really. Now, I know some of you, maybe too many of you, have said, are saying, well, if that's true, then what about this person or those people? I've been in a religious or spiritual community that was quite ugly. I have someone in my life who goes to church all the time, all the time reads the Bible and prays, and they're kind of a twisted person. Again, I'm sorry, but what leads to that is people who come to places like this for something other than interpersonal growth. People who come for a better life, for the right answers, the ability to change other people, this does nothing for them. But because we all can decide if we are open, if we have motives that are open and want to become a better person or not, there's always people that will use places like this for the wrong reasons. Always. A couple of weeks ago, one of my former students, who's actually older than me, uh, lives in the Bay Area, took the train down to come and have lunch with me. He has started a pattern of doing this every summer. I think he wants to get out of his context and talk about personal things, is my guess. But during our lunch, he asked me, he's like, Brian, do you, do you have any regrets? And I said, what do you mean? 
And he's like, well, you're mid-40s now. Do you, looking back, do you have any regrets? And I kind of laughed because I'm, yes, plenty. And I am realizing the last couple of years I'm at a different stage of life. I see more wrinkles in the mirror than I used to. Uh, there's a lot less hair than used to be there. Unfortunately, it feels like every year I have to buy a larger waist size. It's, it's not very fun. But one of the advantages of getting a little older is hopefully you gain a little bit of perspective. Not a lot, but a little bit. And so when I look back on my life now, the regrets come from being in a moment where I was sure if I do this, it will work for me. If I do this, this, it will be to my benefit. This is what my generation values, so therefore I should do this. Those decisions have led to actions and pursuits of life that are long forgotten and didn't mean anything, or I've had to go back and make awkward apologies. But when I look back, the things I've done to genuinely try to help other people, the times I have been open to other people speaking into what are my personal demons and going to God or counselors and others, can you help me with this? Times where I was in a sticky place, but I said, what is the right thing to do? And no matter what happens, I am going to do that. Those periods, I have no regrets over. And I think this is something of what Malachi was getting at as he speaks for God in verse 11. Where he says, My name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. Because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Now, I don't think what God is saying through Malachi is one day everyone on planet Earth is going to go to church like this all the time. I don't think that's what, I think that's a surface read. That's mistaking plot for theme. I think what Malachi is getting at is something like the good is what lasts forever and everything else is passing fad. If that's true, then the most realistic, practical, strategic, future-oriented person is the one who decides I'm going to do what's good and right no matter what. That is being most future-oriented. Verse 6, you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. Which again, I think it means make the good which is God himself, the first priority, and not merely what seems to be practical. Okay, that's all I have this morning. Uh, so like I said, we have some time to interact. If you have a question, a comment, um, if you think I got it all wrong, that's even more interesting for everyone here. Um, Put your hand up and...
Ryan will come around with the microphone. Yeah, and then can we also throw the, uh, the Q&R slide up? Um, so for those of you brave enough, I would want to start with you to raise your hand. And then those of you that would like to ask a question but may not want to speak into the mic, you can text in a question. I'll have it here on my phone. Uh, and then I'll ask it or read it into the mic. So who would like to get us started? I will come to you. Hey, Brian. So I was thinking about this when, when you were speaking and, and you know, we as, as believers, ones that, that are always pointed, you know, using uh, God as our North Star, um, how can we expect society around us and people around us that don't have necessarily the same idea of what's good, uh-huh. um, how do we have the same expectation or, you know, maybe in their heart of hearts, they, they are always choosing what's good and we are not the, the ones in, in, in their opinion of choosing what's good. How do we approach that? How, do, how are we able to, to kind of navigate that? Great, great question. Um, I don't know if I will have a helpful response. My reading of the scriptures and spiritual writers throughout history would say the point, the point of us coming to God is to open our lives up to be transformed by him. And the moment that I am starting to think how can I get everyone else to do this too? I've probably overstepped a line. The, mo- the easiest way, not easy, but the easiest way to influence other people is to be a different person yourself. And the history of people who follow Jesus when it's, I come to you, help me to take on your values, help me to become like you, help me to become a, a beautiful person to so many other people. The more that we do that, others around us who are open tend to kind of want in on it. The moment we start saying, hey, I got a good thing, you need this. I mean, come on, you need this. We have moved away from what's good. And I think many of us who claim to be Christians are dealing with a bad reputation right now because for a few centuries, we thought it was our job to change everyone else. Coming. So I just have a follow-up on that. I agree with you, but how does that sit in context with an evangelical um, like calling in the world, if that even is a calling for people to have, for Christians to have? And by evangelical, you mean? Meaning to always be evangelizing. Oh, okay. Telling people, like, here's what yep. we've got. You should have it, too. And I feel like that is how it comes across. Yeah. Um, um, another great question. Uh, I am someone who, I was a full-time pastor for years, I'm a full-time seminary professor, I believe in this stuff, (laughs) I hope other people catch it. I also had started a church in Pennsylvania for years. Um, One of my passions is being a friend or a, a helpful partner to people who did not grow up with faith at all and helping them find the way of Jesus. So I... I think that is a good thing. Um, But the main priority is what happens within us. 
and then we just create contexts where things might happen. So in some ways, we could say Midtown is evangelical that, in that definition. This is a gathering that's open to everyone. We hope you invite your friends. Someone like me stands up here and talks about some of these things. Uh, so that is evangelical, I guess, in that sense. But we always have to have a posture as if people are not interested, we're okay with that. I think a good practice for those of us who's, who say, Jesus is everything, and man, I, I have friends that I think could benefit from him, is just in our relationships, we have a conversation, maybe we mention Midtown, maybe we mention Jesus, and if someone changes the conversation, the topic, we let it go and we take that as a signal, no. We don't try to beat that door in, we don't try to convince them. But there's always some people who are like, hey, yeah, I need something. Yeah, like that, that could help me. So I think we just kind of relationally feel it out. But for a long time, the mindset has been what God wants us to do is help everyone get this. And that might be what God wants to do, but we're not God. And I'm not sure that's always best for us to do. But great question. That's good. I'll ask this one from the phone and then walk over there. Uh, is the point of coming to church more us-oriented coming to grow in inner beauty, or more God-oriented, coming to worship God together. They aren't mutually exclusive, I think. So how would Malachi speak to that? Um, another great question. I think the greatest theologians historically would say God does not need anything from us. Um, God is content God's just fine with himself. God does not need us to worship him. Worship is what we need. Um, church at its best is a gathered community of those of us who are open because we know we need change. God doesn't need us to do this. We need it. And that might sound like I'm parsing words a little bit, maybe I am, trying to be a little too cute. Um, but God is pure love, pure goodness, pure beauty. He does not need stuff from us. We need it. Um, and I think, I think that matters in how we think about God. That's good. I think we'll do this, I'll read one more, and then we'll wrap. Um, I'm going to go back to that topic for a second because I'm just fascinated in like a post-evangelical age. Mm -hmm. um, how do you reconcile that with like the Great Commission? So if the, if the Bible talks about that we are supposed to spread the word of God mm -hmm. throughout the world to every corner and to every age, I'm not saying that I necessarily subscribe to that myself. I'm just interested to what you, how do you interpret that then with that opinion? Yeah, um, another, another great question. Again, I want to be clear. I think everyone would benefit mightily from becoming a student of Jesus. I believe that strongly. I would like to see more of that. Um, I am there's a reason I started a church years ago, and once I left being a full-time 
pastor and became a full-time professor, the only churches I've been a part of are church plants because new churches tend to be more outward focused. And I think that really matters. So on one level, maybe I didn't say it the right way. I think you're right. But being a person who is open to the good ways of Jesus myself is more important than me telling people what I think are the good ways of Jesus. So if it comes, if I'm in a context where someone doesn't seem interested or they disagree or they're not there, it's more important that I be good than I try to win the argument. So again, I think it's just that simple. Yeah, if, if Jesus matters to some of us, he's part of our life, he's gonna come up, and if people are open, we keep going. And if they're not, we don't. And I think that was Jesus' method, too. I mean, he talked about it with the disciples. You go into a town, if someone invites you in, you stay there. If they're not interested, you just go on to another town. Um, but because of some, in my opinion, less than healthy views of God, some of us have gotten in our mind that we're the most dedicated God person if we push this whether people want it or not. And I don't think that's right. So this last one, Brian, and then we'll, we'll move into the next piece. I try to live for the Lord daily, fall short. I often make comfortable decisions as a human who naturally sins. Uh -huh. Is this a sign of unbelief? Do we ask the Lord to help us in our belief? so that we can sacrifice the best of us. Yeah, I mean, I, I think any of us who attempt a spiritual life, that's how we feel. The, the best Christian writers throughout time would say the entire purpose of life is for us to enter a process of being open and slowly becoming a little bit more like Jesus and less like our just natural biological self. And it's kind of a lifelong process. And if that's true, and I, I think it is, then that means the experience for all of us is, wow, here's where I am today. Man, I have these regrets. I'm glad I'm not that way anymore. And then if I'm still open the next day, wow, okay, yeah, that's a good thing. Oh, why did I think that yesterday? and then the next day, and the next day. So in some way, it's not that God is angry with us. What it feels like for those of us on the inside who are going from being self-absorbed little beings to opening ourselves to God and what's good is it feels like becoming a different person and regretting certain things we did before. I think it's just what it feels like. That's good. So we're going to do uh, invite Jason and Ish up. Uh, Brian's going to lead us in a prayerful reflection here. And then after that, we will um, we'll stand, uh, we'll enter into a time of communion, uh, and then the prayer ministry team will come forward. So I would encourage you as we go through this, being open to what God might have for you. Whatever does come up, it could be something to respond to, whether it be to communion, whether it be for prayer. Uh, so there'll be an invitation after this if you want to take us into it. All right, so I, I'm going to invite everyone to stand, if you're okay with that, please. And I just, 
very simply want, I'm hoping again to facilitate a little bit of a private prayer time between you and your Creator. You don't have to say anything out loud, you don't have to move around, but I'm going to ask you the best that you can to quietly and silently engage your Creator during this time. So with your eyes closed, standing there silently, what are you struggling with right now? What is your greatest problem or your biggest frustration? Allow that to come to mind. Ask your Creator to bring to mind if you were to deal with this struggle or this problem or this frustration in the most safe and careful and practical what would work easiest for you solution what would that look like? If you attempt to deal with this problem by what makes sense to you what might that look like? Thinking of what you're struggling with, your greatest problem or frustration, Ask your Creator, what would it look like for you to do the good thing in this situation? The beautiful thing. The right thing. Notice what comes to mind. Finally, quietly, privately within yourself, speak to your Creator about what you are going to do or not do about this situation. thank you for my brothers and sisters here this morning there are other things they could be doing and yet they came to a community like this to sometimes engage with difficult realities because they're trying to be open to you 
Whatever you have brought to their mind about what is good, about what is right, what is beautiful, even if it's difficult, may they have the courage and the faith to put that into practice. May they always remember that what is doing what is good is what it means to be someone who trusts in you. Thank you for being pure goodness, pure love, pure beauty. May we all continue on the journey to letting more of you into more of our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray.